Hi, my name is Peter Beinart. I'm a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and very glad to be joined here for another episode of the uh, Foundation's podcast, Occupy Thoughts, with Omar Shakir, who is the Israel-Palestine Director of Human Rights. Thanks for coming. Thank you. So, uh, Omar, you've had really an ordeal um, uh, with the Israeli government uh, based on the work that you've done, and um, which has led to your expulsion uh, from the country in court cases, and I think a really important illustration of the state of free speech today in Israel as it relates to criticizing Israeli policy towards Palestinians. And I'd love you to just start by kind of laying out, you know, what's happened in your life. Sure. Uh, this case goes back, I think, multiple uh, years actually now. About two years ago, uh, the Israeli government denied Human Rights Watch permission to have a foreign employee in Israel. Um, that was after um, taking eight months to process a work permit application that should take uh, 60 days. They denied that work permit on the basis that they said Human Rights Watch was not a legitimate human rights organization, but rather was pro propagandists for Palestinians. Uh, as soon as that story went public, it attracted quite a bit of attention. And eventually the Israeli government allowed me in on a tourist visa and eventually in April of 2017 gave me a work permit. But actually the day after I received that work permit, uh, Shirat Hadin, which is a uh, legal organization with ties to the settler movement, filed a lawsuit in Jerusalem alleging that the Israeli government violated a recently passed law that permits the interior ministry to deny entry to boycott activists by allowing me and Human Rights Watch to operate in the country. That led to a months-long review in the interior ministry who then informed us in late 2017 that they were um, – that they had determined that I have been a boycott activist for many years, including my work with Human Rights Watch but dating back to when I was a university student – um, you know, years ago. And uh, we asked them on what basis they made this determination. And as far as we know, for the first time in Israel's history, they furnished me a human rights defender with a copy of the government's intelligence dossier on them. And then in May of 2018, the government made a decision um, to deport me. They gave me 14 days to leave Israel. Um, this time, their allegation was that um, I was a boycott activist, as opposed to originally it being about Human Rights Watch institutionally being, um, you know, as they said, Palestinian propagandists. We filed a lawsuit represented by a great, a great Israeli human rights lawyers, uh, Michael Sfard, Emily Schaefer Omerman, Sophie Brodsky, and uh, challenging not only the decision to deport me, but the law that it was based on, the draconian 2017 uh, amendment to the law of entry bending entry of boycott activists. The day before my deportation was due to take place in May, the court issued an injunction, the Jerusalem District Court, which froze enforcement of the deportation until the end of legal proceedings. We've been in court um, ever since then. Uh, the government last month filed its uh, formal affidavit reply brief in which they again doubled down on my deportation. Their argument has now shifted a little bit and they focus very directly on my advocacy at Human Rights Watch. Uh, the, the 120 pages includes screenshots of our research and advocacy regarding abuses by businesses and settlements. And I'm due in court on March 11th for what should be the final hearing in the case before the court rules whether or not um, the deportation order should be allowed to stand and me to leave the country.
So currently, while the proceedings are going on, are you allowed to be working in Israel for Human Rights Watch? Yes. So the injunction permits me to remain in the country. So I have a document from the court um, since my visa has been revoked, um, which says that I'm allowed to legally remain. Um, I only travel with permission of the Israeli government. So when I left, um, you know, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv uh, last week to arrive here, I, you know, had a letter I used with border control. That's what I I will use when I return ahead of my court hearing. Um, on March 11th. So I'm permitted to remain in country, um, travel um, subject to coordination with the Israeli government, and that's the interim position until the court uh, reaches its final decision on the case. So give us a little more context in terms of what you think has been going on politically in Israel that has led the government to take this step. So there's been, of course, uh, this is not something that's happened in isolation, right? We've seen um, really a dramatic shrinking of the space for criticism um, of Israel, in particular, any advocacy that the Israeli government sees as related to boycott. Um, of course, Human Rights Watch takes no positions on boycott, like we take no positions on war occupation. Our role is to document abuses by all parties and abuses by c- corporations, as with governments. But of course, this decision is happening at a time in which many other rights advocates have been uh, denied entry into the country, where laws have been passed that impose punishments um, on boycott activists. We've seen Israeli rights advocates accused of slander, accused of discrediting the army or their state, the state for their um, criticism of policies. And of course, we've seen Palestinian rights defenders that face it worse, that face criminal charges, that face uh, travel bans in some cases, um, etc. So but of course, there's there's an interesting interplay within the Israeli government. So in my case, for example, the decision was made by the Interior Ministry based on a recommendation by the Ministry of Strategic Affairs and Public Diplomacy, Minister Erdan, who has sort of been leading the fight against what he calls delegitimization of Israel and, and boycotts. And of course, there have been a, six, a series of reports that his office has issued also regarding funding for organizations, Israeli and Palestinians, that they say um, accuse of not only support of boycotts, but in some cases even uh, terrorism. And at the same time, the foreign ministry has actually opposed my deportation. Um, we don't know the basis for that decision. The government has classified the foreign ministry's opinion in the case. Um, the brief summary that was provided in my intelligence dossier indicates that it's based on concern about bad press um, to the Israeli to, to Israel. So I think there's really a vigorous debate um, that's happening right now, and it's not unique to human rights defenders. I mean, the debate here between the foreign ministry and interior ministry, in some ways, embodies the debate that we've seen in Israel regarding its settlement policy where there are um, advocates that are want formal annexation, want to use the current political moment in this U.S. administration and this constellation of factors in the international community to consolidate um, Israel's de facto um, you know, uh, annexation of the West Bank. And there are other forces that worry that that sort of policy, just like the policy of deporting Human Rights Watch, an organization that has received a Nobel Peace Prize and been operating for three decades in Israel and Palestine as part of our work in nearly 100 countries across the world, as potentially moving Israel down a path that makes its ultimate um, project of settlements and um, two-tiered discrimination untenable in the long run. Do you have any sense of whether... uh a change in Israeli government with the upcoming elections could affect 
that balance uh, in terms of, of the different perspectives on, on how Israel should, res- should treat, you know, human rights organizations? Unfortunately, you know, while there has, of course, been the emergence in this elections of, um, you know, a serious rival, I think, to the Netanyahu government, unfortunately, it doesn't seem that issues regarding the occupation or regarding human rights defenders are at, at the forefront of the conversation. Of course, there have been statements, you know, made publicly by Gantz, one of the main rivals to Netanyahu, regarding settlements that maybe suggests a difference in policy. But the debate has largely been one that's been focused on uh, personalities or focused on, you know, uh, a rhetoric that uh, is not conducive to a serious conversation regarding um, the fact that we're in an over 50 year-long occupation that's been defined by systematic rights abuse, um, institutional discrimination, and um, really systematic abuses of the rights of Palestinians. Um, So that isn't what seems to be on the forefront of the conversation. Um, And the indications of who uh, might be included in this next government, particularly, um, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu's potential coalition, certainly um, suggests that things could continue to get um, worse. Um, you know, we certainly always hope um, hope for better outcomes, but um, the kind of rhetoric we see in the election campaign and the continued um, intimidation of rights defenders, including Israeli rights defenders, suggests that uh, we're unlikely to see, in, at least in the short term, a fundamental shift in respect for human rights defenders or for basic international norms. Human Rights work, Watch works throughout the Middle East and North Africa, and you yourself have worked in other in other places. I'm wondering um, what it's like, what working in Israel-Palestine is like compared to working in some of the other countries that you've worked in. Sure. Um, no, Human Rights Watch works in every country in the Middle East, North Africa, all 19 countries. I formerly covered Egypt uh, for Human Rights Watch. I documented uh, the Rabah massacre, one of the largest single-day killings of protesters in modern history when in August 2013 when over 800 uh, Egyptians were gunned down by uh, the army and and security forces. I was eventually kicked out of Egypt uh, for doing that work. I've also um, been denied visas or entry from Bahrain, from Syria, um, you know, sometimes on similar bases. Um, The first thing I actually noticed when I got to the ground was um, the fact that it was really unique that we we had engagement with the Israeli government because as much as we fundamentally disagreed on the law, when we would call a ministry or the army to get check a fact to get information, we'd get responses, which was new to me because I also am a U.S. lawyer by training. I represented men detained in Guantanamo Bay, and I went back and forth to the base. I'm quite used to dealing with institutions, including the U.S., including that space that don't provide basic information. So at first, it was quite unique to me um, that we, we were able to get meetings and get information when we needed from the Israeli government. But things have shifted even in the course of my um, almost two and a half years now at at Human Rights Watch, where now it's quite difficult, um, uh, near impossible to have substantive engagement with any part of the Israeli government um, on uh, on their policies. Um, We get information sometimes, but not always. Um, and access continues to be an, a huge issue for us. So it's not only um, the fact that I'm facing an imminent deportation. I've been in limbo now for the majority of my time on the ground. Um, we have other restrictions. So, for example, the Israeli government has only allowed us into Gaza 
one time since 2008 on an exceptional basis. And the reason for that is not some sort of security assessment, but the closure policy has exemptions for humanitarian workers, for example, but not for human rights workers. So as a matter of policy, we can't enter Gaza. So to give you an example, uh, Peter, we did a report in October about systematic abuses, arbitrary arrests and torture by the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, uh, mostly of supporters of one another. And we had really strong recommendations saying they could amount to possible crimes against humanity. We requested a permit to release the report in Gaza City which would have had an unprecedented conversation, which doesn't exist about Hamas abuses in Gaza, but the Israeli army denied us a permit to do so. We held a press conference in Ramallah, generated significant conversation, but we weren't able to do it as well in Gaza. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about this too, because I think it's an important thing that um, uh, people don't often recognize about Human Rights Watch, was that it also <coughs> works on Excuse abuses um, by, by Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. Um, and um, I wanted to ask you first if you could kind of compare the level of repression um, under the PA versus under Hamas in Gaza. How would you compare the two? You know, we started on parallel tracks. So we've been documenting mm. abuses by both authorities going back to 1993, um, the Oslo process and the creation of Palestinian self-governance. Our first Palestinian torture report was written in 1994. So these are not, this is not a new area of work for us. It's part of our holistic commitment to human rights protections on the ground. Um, I started doing a research project in 2016, looking at patterns of harassment and torture in both Gaza and the West Bank. Um, and originally I wasn't sure what form that research would take, but what we started finding was that m the abuses were quite similar. And not only just in the abstract, arresting dissidents for Facebook post, um, crit you know, critical journalists, those who attend demonstrations, um, students affiliated with the rivals group. So it wasn't only kind of qualitatively this the violation was the same, arbitrary arrest based on peaceful um, expression, but actually even the types of people being detained um, were quite similar. There were differences. So for example, on arbitrary arrest, um, we noticed in the West Bank that oftentimes prosecutors would leave charges hanging so that that kind of loomed over a dissident as they considered future activism. Whereas in Gaza, a lot of times uh, dissidents were made to sign commitments not to engage in further conduct. But the underlying objective and abuse is the same. On torture, the main tactic called shebah or positional torture, where um, somebody is often held with their arms tied behind their back slowly raised as a way of putting pressure um, on their body was similar, but also slightly different methods um, where, you know, in Gaza, a lot of times people were made to sit in a small chair or stand for hours or even days at a time during the interrogation process. So they're quite similar, frankly. Um, our title of our report, I think, speaks to that. Two authorities, one way, zero dissent, which I think gets to the heart of the reality on the ground, which is 25 years after Palestinians gained a degree of self-rule, they've developed parallel police states. And in the West Bank, what is the relationship in terms of these denial of rights between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government? Since obviously, you know, Palestinians who live in the West Bank live under both of these uh, authorities, right? I mean, the ultimate authority is Israel, but then they may be coming into contact with the Palestinian Authority. So is there a situation where 
the Palestinian Authority and Israel are often working kind of hand in hand in these efforts to repress dissent, or are there often, or are there people, or is it generally the situation that the PA is kind of working fairly autonomously? What's that interaction like? One of the more fascinating findings of our report was that we did, we looked at 86 cases, about half in the West Bank, half in Gaza over a two-year period, and almost half of the cases in the West Bank were people who were detained by both the Israeli army and by the Palestinian Authority, often on the same underlying set of allegations. So I remember one case of a, of a man uh, who lived in the northern West Bank who um, actually was convicted um, in an Israeli military court, served a 12-year prison sentence, and the second day after his release was detained by the Palestinian Authority and then I think was detained 15 times over the course of the subsequent two years. Um, there are other cases of individuals who um, were held by the PA and then held in administrative detention uh, by the Israeli army um, afterwards. And actually, we had some high-level meetings with Palestinian Authority officials. And I recall one meeting in which an official told me, we sometimes detain people so the Israeli army doesn't detain them. You know, So this was sort of the justification of trying to protect them, mm. uh, which of course uh, is a completely baseless uh, allegation because they're, they're torturing and holding these people in some cases without charge. Palestinians actually have held, according to the semi-governmental Palestinian watchdog, 221 Palestinians from January 2017 through August 2018 without trial or charge. I mean, they're using administrative detention, a known practice. But this is not some sort of secret. I mean, the Israeli government, the Palestinian Authority have both spoken about security coordination. And of course, the rhetoric um, in the U.S. and Washington often focuses on um, the kind of positive angles of, of, of why this could be positive. But the reality is you have two authorities, intolerant of dissent, which are squeezing Palestinians who sometimes for critical journalism, sometimes for their posts on social media are being detained by one or both authorities. Of course, that's not all cases. There are also cases of people that the PA detains um, that aren't on the Isra Israel's radar and vice versa. There's sometimes the Israeli army feels the PA isn't acting strongly enough on a certain group or area. So there's not a perfect overlap, but we certainly there's a there's a circle in the middle of the Venn diagram where a, a segment of the population is being uh, sort of targeted by both authorities. And I, you know, I, I even recall interviews where someone told me they were sitting in front of an intelligence officer of the PA and they saw the file in front of them and it had the word in Arabic that translates to outside sources, mm -hmm. you know, which for them was a sign that they were even getting the intelligence in some cases from from these from Israel. Again, we don't have the, the proof to say that definitively, but I think there's enough there to suggest uh, relatively close coordination. Hmm. As as someone you yourself being an American and someone who knows the American discourse about Israel and um, the Palestinian territories well, what are what do you think are the realities on the ground uh, in the West Bank uh, that, or if you want to talk about Gaza inside Israel itself too, that are in terms of human rights that are least well understood in the American conversation. I would start with just, uh, you know, the reality today and then I'll sort of dive in. What people don't understand, I think, writ large is that today, you know, if you take Israel and Palestine, so if you take Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, you have about, you know, 13 million people, about six and a half million Israeli Jews and about six and a half million Palestinians. And although there are different legal regimes in each area in the West Bank and even within the West Bank in East Jerusalem and Gaza and Israel, fundamentally Palestinians are treated unequally in the entirety of these areas. Um, 
And I think people don't realize that reality. So a lot of time there's a sense that, okay, there's the occupation and, um, you know, but, but, but really we see that policy sort of across the board. I think a couple other things that often surprise people is people don't realize that there's been a generalized travel ban on Gaza for 12 years. It's a closure policy that presumptively says nobody in, nobody out, unless you fall within a, a, a number of exemptions. Peter, let me give you an example of my own colleague. We have a local research assistant, a Palestinian in Gaza. Until a year ago, she had never left Gaza. She's now 32 in her entire life. Um, we were we somehow managed to get our permit to leave a year ago um, on an exceptional basis. Um, she applied again for a permit and was denied. Um, and it's not because she posed a threat to Israel. It's because it's a generalized policy. It's not based on an individualized security assessment. And people don't realize that the closure of Gaza isn't actually in Israel's security interest. And I say this not uh, – there's a lot of evidence for this, right? I mean it, the former head of, the, of Kogat, the branch of the Israeli army in charge of the occupied territories, called for a Marshall Plan of Gaza. Those in the Israeli security establishment actually understand pretty well that keeping Gaza closed and on the brink – doesn't serve Israel's security interests. Today in Gaza, travel in 2018, according to our research, out of Gaza is about 1% what it was in September of 2000. Gaza's GDP in the last 25 years has dropped by nearly 20%. You have 80% of the population reliant on humanitarian aid. And there's and electricity around four hours a day. It's increased more of late in part um, due to um, uh, the allowing in of fuel and other things. But the bottom line is Today in Gaza, the primary driver of um, uh, the economic situation and Palestinian despair that leads people to protest, even in the face of uh, you know being live ammunition being fired at them, is a situation driven by the closure policy. And people often don't understand that. I think people don't understand the degree to which settlements are integrated within Israel proper. Um, you know, the green line is something in on a map. But when you live on the ground, you know, there are roads that are built consciously on the green line and one side of the road is on one side, the other side is not. And there are settlers who we've spoken to who will insist that they don't live in a settlement mm -hmm. because they never cross any, mm -hmm. any line, mm -hmm. but it's quite clear on a map. So I think when people get on the ground, um, they realize that in, in so much of the rhetoric in the U.S., of course, is focuses on solutions, one state, two state. But people don't realize we live in a one state reality. And that's what I started by saying. Today, there's effectively one power that controls the fate of all people in these areas. Again, there are pockets of Palestinian self-rule. And the only thing really the Palestinian governments do well, as I said, is repression. But, you know, they don't control the checkpoint one kilometer away from where the presidential palace is in Ramallah. So I think people don't realize the Gaza closure, the, 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 how it's not linked to Israel's security and the extent to which there really is you know, one effective power, you know, even in Gaza, people forget that Gaza is still occupied, according to the UN, to the Red Cross, to us. I mean, Israel still controls the entry and exit of people, of goods, the borders, the airspace, the water space. Israel still registers every baby born in Gaza. So I think people don't understand those elements. It's too often a focus on, um, you know, some solution devoid of understanding the problem that exists. So I wanted to to, to ask you more about the Gaza question. So yeah. I think one response that some might have is, wait a second, if Israel's, if the Gaza, surely Israel must, the Israeli government must believe that the, the, the blockade in Gaza is serving Israel's security interests. 
what what other reason would they have for maintaining it if it were not? So if you don't think it actually is good for Israeli security, what do you think the actual motive for the blockade is? Sure. So I think there are a couple things to say here. I think one is there's a political reality. I mean, we saw what happened with the resignation of former Defense Minister Lieberman. He thought that Netanyahu, I never thought we'd have a day, was going too soft, mm. you know, by not going to a full-fledged war. So there's a reality of a, of a political conversation. Mm. Gaza is out of the conscious mm. of most Israelis. I mean, if you're on the beach in Tel Aviv, you're one hour away from the Gaza Strip, but mm. you couldn't be from a more different world. So politically, there's no benefit, uh, perceived benefit of, of, of lifting the closure of Gaza. The, because you'll be attacked as soft by more right-wing You'll be attacked as soft. And that's where the rhetoric – it's a very mm. militarized kind of, of, of rhetoric that exists. So I think f- f- the formal policy on, on Gaza, right, is about choking Hamas mm-hmm. until Hamas is toppled. And there are certainly people in Israel that will say that's – based on a security strategy and a security assessment. But ultimately, it's a political strategy, right? So, you know, for example, for a number of years, um, industrial margarine, you know, wasn't like margarine like butter, wasn't allowed into Gaza, but it was allowed in in small quantities. The reason wasn't because margarine rockets were being fired at Israel. It's because the cookie factory, Mm. they wanted to choke the cookie factory as a Mm. way of putting pressure on Hamas. Similarly- The idea being that if if, if Palestinians in Gaza see that they're, their lives are much worse than Palestinians in the West Bank, then they'll say we want to get rid of Hamas. Exactly. And, uh, you know, for example, exports out of Gaza, which is an understudied issue in the U.S., you know, only two vegetables are allowed into the Israeli market, right? It's tomatoes and eggplants, not other ones. Mm. There are other policy reasons for that, which, you know, I'm not an economic expert, but it's not a security-based um, assessment. But I think really— um, the, the motivation behind the Gaza policy was said by Shimon Peres in 2005. He said quite clearly, we're disengaging from Gaza because of demography, right? So there is an element of collective punishment. And, you know, especially we saw, you know, when there were um, rockets fired or fire balloons uh, with fire and then one of the responses was to shut down the commercial crossing. There's an element of collective punishment. There's an element of a strategy to choke Hamas. But I think the fundamental policy is a demographic reality, right? Which is if you take 2 million Palestinians effectively off the demographic books, you consolidate uh, a Jewish majority of, uh, in, in Israel that includes the West Bank. And I think too often um, demographic engineering has sort of been behind the Israeli policy um, towards Palestinians uh, writ large. And I think that's clear from the fact that Israel continues, as I said, to register every baby born in Gaza. Con- it controls a population registry. And also, for example, and this is something that the Israeli Human rights group Isha started to document. It documents it's it for example has allowed Palestinian couples, mixed couples, West Bank, Gaza, um, to live in Gaza, but not to live in the West Bank and not in in Israel. I think Gaza is seen um, as a demographic sort of a receptacle to hold two million Palestinians behind walls that are sort of out of the calculus. Effectively, its own entity, even though Israel still holds the keys. It's effectively become an open air prison, but it's out of sight, out of mind, 2 million people in a 25 by 7 mile um, uh, area that are sort of off the radar. I want to ask you a personal question. Yeah. You're, you're American, yes. but I imagine your family comes from somewhere else, right? Where does your family come from? Sure. Uh, from Iraq originally. So my parents are both born and raised in, in Baghdad. Mm. Um, but yeah, I uh, immigrated here and I was born and raised in California. Interesting. Okay. So you have really what I think a really you have a kind of experience that not very many people have, right, which is that you are an American who goes or, you know, now it's become more difficult because these really the court cases, but for a period was going 
through is throughout Israel, also into the West Bank. Um, uh, and uh, yet probably people could tell based on your name or whatever, maybe the fact that you speak Arabic, that you have Arab ancestry. Um, and I'm just in, and maybe they even assumed you were Palestinian. I'm just be really interested in, in very few people have that experience um, um, in this. And, and I'm just wondering, what was that like? What was it just like living in Israel day to day, interacting with people as as someone who was American, but people could also knew uh, or probably maybe made the assumption was was of an Arab background? No, it's a great question. I mean, I think one thing is, you know, there are many Israelis, of course, that come from Arab backgrounds. Yes. So I think people often don't know. And when I speak the way I do, it's disarming. You so know? some of them may have thought you were a Mizrahi Jew. Of course. Or, yes. you know, or if I go through checkpoints mm-hmm. coming into and out of Ramallah, they look at me, you know, the first thing is, where's your ID? And I speak to them English like this, and it's disarming because they're mm-hmm. sort of not used. Yes. Uh, if you're a soldier, you're not used to that uh, to that scene. What I will say is, I you know, one of the things I think the Israeli government uh, didn't count on is that I built a lot of really good relationships, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. across uh, Israel and Palestine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when they ordered me deported in May, at that point, I had been on the ground for almost a year and I had close relationships mm-hmm. with journalists, mm-hmm. with NGOs. Mm-hmm. So um, if I can be candid with you, mm-hmm. Peter, I mean, I think part of the Israeli government's calculus is if we accuse an Arab American of BDS, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's not going to register a ripple within Israel where, you know, BDS has been attacked you know, so, so directly, but the day after the order, 17 Israeli NGOs, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, I think almost none of which take Mm -hmm. a position on boycott or maybe Mm -hmm. at most one Mm -hmm. came out with a statement of support for me. Mm -hmm. The week of my deportation, um, you know, a very professional Israeli journalist on IDF radio Mm -hmm. had me on several Mm -hmm. times in the Mm -hmm. morning segment to talk about my case. Um, You know, a a prominent journalist for uh, uh, one of the major Israeli TV channels Mm -hmm. also had me for an evening sit down segment. Mm -hmm. So I think these were things that were sort of not maybe calculated um, by the Israeli government. So I think if I'm honest, I will Mm -hmm. say that it's not always easy Mm -hmm. um, in part because when you're labeled, Mm -hmm. you know, when a government creates a dossier on you, when there's Mm -hmm. a network of NGOs that, you know, spend much of their time smearing and Mm -hmm. sliming. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, just as an example, in my court case, there Mm -hmm. are three NGOs that have joined on the government side to urge my deportation. Mm -hmm. Um, I gave a talk uh, a couple of weeks ago in Amsterdam, and you know, within a week that there was an excerpt from it in a court submission by one of these NGOs mm-hmm. as basis for deportation. What so, are the three NGOs? Um, so it's Shrat Hadin, mm-hmm. um, it is NGO Monitor, mm-hmm. and it is a group called the Legal Forum for Eretz Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have all coming in with a different sort of vantage mm-hmm. point, but they're all amicus on the case. They were allowed in court to make arguments on behalf of my deportation. But I guess my point, Peter, is to say that sometimes when I sit with people, mm-hmm. um, of course, they're incredible Israeli human rights activists mm-hmm. that just get the reality mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know there's sort of no this doesn't apply to them but sometimes there's apprehension or mistrust or mm-hmm. lack of knowledge mm-hmm. and i think when i make them aware of who mm-hmm. i am and mm-hmm. what human rights watch is and what our principles are in the places i've worked in and that this approach is entirely consistent with our universal approach mm-hmm. that we there's a real relationship there but there's certainly a barrier that's imposed in part by you know uh background in a, in a country that, you know, has very serious issues of racism and discrimination. But um, but I think a lot of it has to do with also the vilification of people who do this kind of work. Mm. So if I were to play devil's advocate sometimes on these podcasts, I like to try to assume the persona of a, someone, a composite character I call Ira, which is the kind of guy that I sometimes run across in, in synagogue. And what I imagine Ira might be saying is, wait a second, 
this guy Omar, when he was in college, he was involved in boycott activities. So we know he's not a fan of Israel. And we know that there are people all around the world who don't want Israel to exist as a Jewish state. Um, and they're, they, you know, they're hostile to Israel. So why should a country like Israel that's facing all of this international boycott effort basically let a guy in and run around and document all the bad things it does when we know from his prior history that he already has some animus towards the country? And that's uh, a good question, Ira, and I would love the chance to sit, <laughs> sit, sit with you for, uh, for, for a coffee and chat about it. Uh, hopefully you would see that, uh, you know, see, see a different perspective. But look, I mean, everybody at Human Rights Watch engaged in activities. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone in a government engaged in political activities has opinions, mm-hmm. has views. But when you join Human Rights Watch, you're part of a uh, NGO that has hundreds of employees. Every document we write um, is reviewed by uh, many, many different individuals. Um, we have a mandate that that we stick to, which is quite clear in what we do and what we don't do. And if you don't believe me, take the Israeli Interior Ministry, which itself says Human Rights Watch is not a boycott organization and says that neither I or hum- I as a representative of Human Rights Watch or Human Rights Watch support boycotts of Israel. What I would say is, you know, Israel, um, you know, calls itself a democracy. But today, Human Rights Watch has offices and operates in Jordan and Lebanon, Tunisia. And these are countries in which uh, we're very critical in many cases of government um, policy. Um, You know, but the course of action Israel, the the road it's on when it's in the business of denying entry to rights activists it's a political litmus test, right? I mean, I think the question I would ask Ira is, you know, is this uh, Israel that you have an attachment to, a connection to, is this the country you want, which is, uh, you know, unwelcoming uh, to an international respected human rights organization? Um, this is the kind of action taken by governments in some of the worst countries we work in, right? Country Countries like Cuba, North Korea, Ethiopia, you know, Venezuela. That's the kind of way the government reacts to us. As I told you, Peter, I mean, I'm not new to this game, right? I've had Syria, Egypt, Bahrain. Um, you know, I didn't expect that we'd be in this situation um, here. And of course, my you know my commitment, the same commitment that has led me to have done work before I joined Human Rights Watch in Israel Palestine is the same commitment that um, led me to write my honors thesis on Egypt as a student at Stanford or to cover Egypt or to represent two main men detained in Guantanamo or to go to Pakistan to write a report on the civilian uh, victims of U.S. drone strikes there. So um, it's, it's a universal commitment. Um, and um, this is just the kind of the latest uh, file that that I received at Human Rights Watch. It's the first time I worked professionally on Israel-Palestine. So um, what I would tell him is that I think the Israel that um, that that at least um, uh, was established was one that um, had space for alternative views and for criticism, and um, wasn't one that was um, built on um, entrenched discrimination. And and uh, that's not the one that we see today. In terms of the human rights situation um, in Israel-Palestine going forward, I wonder if you can, I know this is totally speculative, but I wonder if you had to, if someone had to say to you, what are some different courses that from a human rights perspective, things might take over the next five years? How might things evolve um, for better or for worse? I'm just wondering, based on all your work on the ground, what, what trends you see that you think may, may play themselves out in the coming years? Sure. I mean, I think I think there there's there's we're really at sort of a visioning moment, I think, internationally. And this is not just the situation on the ground where I think, look, the, the abuses, they're entrenched, they're long established, they're well known. 
Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily see something fundamentally different happening, right? The most serious abuses continue to be um, the, the two-tier discriminatory system in the West Bank um, that grows out of the establishment of illegal settlements there, right, from, um, uh, from uh, building policies, from uh, movement restrictions, different legal systems, et cetera, um, use of force standards that we saw in Gaza. You know, what tends to end up happening is you, you might see a shift depending on events on the ground. So, for, for example, when there were protests in Gaza, the use of force standards, which have always been problematic, although I think in some ways took a, an extra step with, with Gaza, where basically the Israeli government was permitting firing on people that don't pose an imminent threat to life, which is a flagrant violation of international uh, policing standards. Um, the shift went there, right? Or you might see more shift to home demolitions. Um, uh, you know, But I do think in the next two to three years, I think there are some parts of the Israeli government, especially how this election go, that really want to consolidate their hand on the ground, right? Which I think means, um, you know, potentially rapid expansion of settlements, um, you know, demolitions that allow them to consolidate sort of geographic territory that they want to um, hold on to. I think there's a big question about the Palestinian Authority going forward, um, not only given um, its own ineptitude, effectiveness, corruption, abuse, but, uh, you know, cut, cuts in funding. There's a real, I think when I say we're at a visioning moment, um, what I mean by that is um, for 25 years, many people have been sort of putting their faith in a, a peace process and a paradigm of a, of a two-state solution. Um, and when you look on the ground, though, as I said, we have a one-state reality. But Peter, it's actually forgetting that because we don't take a position on solutions. Let me tell you as a matter of law, the law of occupation, which is the basis that we use to evaluate situations, is premised on the idea of occupations being temporary. The idea is an occupier can abridge rights for some interim period, but ultimately they're supposed to preserve the land, the resources, etc. So the indigenous community eventually takes it over. But there's the, the mask has been ripped. I mean, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been quite explicit that he intends to remain in settlements permanently, right? But a permanent occupation um, raises all sorts of other questions, right? I mean, you know, can we continue to have a reality where Palestinians and Israelis living in the same territory are under a separate legal system, right? Or a reality in which a Palestinian – Israel controls Gaza and controls towns and villages a kilometer away from Gaza that are Israeli, but provides the Israeli towns with 24 hours of electricity, but Palestinians with four. I mean, are we going to tolerate a permanent situation of entrenched two-tiered discrimination where Palestinians are on the bottom line of it? I think, so that gets me back to answering your question, which is just that I think we're going to continue to see more of a manifestation of the current reality, which is quite stark. It's in some cases being brought to light. And I think that's going to force those in the US, those on the outside to evaluate the paradigms that we use, the frameworks that we use, the rhetoric and language we use um, to talk about the situation. I think you're seeing uh, that shift starting to take place. I expect it to continue to take place. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, Omar, thank you very, very much for taking some time. And um, Good luck with the case, and I really hope to, that you'll be back filing your really important reports for Human Rights Watch as soon as possible. Thank you for having me, Peter.